Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It is Good News Tuesday, so we're going to cover some positive news stories and tell you about the good stuff that's happening in the world, not all that negative stuff. Let's go ahead and start our headlines. Today on Before Coffee. Pro-Europe EU parties at Political Center can ward off far-right surge. Matulsa assumes. On Good Tuesday News Day, man is jolted back to life by speed bumps, and the Fed is trying to ban highways, humorous highway signs. Scientists believe the way humans have evolved may be stopping us from solving climate change. And we look at eight wild winter sports. Meet the boxing family fighting to improve the lives of young people in Mexico. Those stories and more, which is World Nothing Day. Roses are red, pickles are sour. We give you the world's news in less than an hour. January 16, 2024, on Before Coffee. Our first news story today. There's a scary proposition of far right taking over the EU and, you know, all sorts of bad stuff can happen from that. But Metsola assures us that they can stop it if they just have a lot of pro-EU parties in the center. This is from Mar Gwyn Jones and Vincenzo Genovese on Euronews. European Parliament President Roberta Metsola has told Irino she is confident that mainstream pro-European political parties can ward off a far-right surge in June's European elections. Speaking in an interview in Strasbourg on Monday, which was yesterday, so the 15th, Metsola said Europe's moderate pro-European parties needed an offer an alternative to voters. I'm worried that if we don't, as part of the pro-European constructive majority at the center, appeal to our voters, then our voters will feel that they have no choice. They have to retreat to the fringes, to those people who want to destroy rather than build, Metsola explains, referring to the Eurosceptic far right. Current polls predict a surge in support for far-right parties in the European elections, which takes place across the continent on the 6th and 9th of June. It follows the far-right leader Gerard Wilders' surprise electoral victory in November's Dutch election and comes as far-right parties include the Germany's alternative Fuhr Deutschland and France's Rassemblement National make historic gains in the national polls. But projections also suggest that the European Parliament's current ruling coalition of Social Democrats, Conservatives and Liberals who work together to ensure EU legislation can be passed will cling on to its majority. Metsola, who belongs to the center-right European People's Party, EPP, and who took over the presidency of the European Parliament in January 2022, said that by finding solutions to challenges such as the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the coalition had proved its resilience. These are big challenges that we have overcome and that we continue to show unity over. And I think that where we find that unity in that is in the center, Metsola explained. So I think we can provide an alternative. We can counter that far right threat if we call it a threat. And I'm confident we can do so, she added. The next five years will not be any easier, but Metsola has warned that European Parliament's next five year term will not be easier than the previous one. 
Since 2019 European elections, the 27 country bloc has faced a raft of unforeseen challenges, including the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a looming economic crisis, probably caused by both of those things. The 720 seat European Parliament, the bloc's only democratically elected institution, has also been rocked by the so-called Qatar Gate or Cater Gate, I guess, cash for influence scandal. In December 2022, the Parliament's Vice President Eva Kal Kylie and other senior parliamentary figures were accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of euros for influencing EU decisions to benefit Qadari and Moroccan officials. All vehemently denied the allegations. Yeah, but don't tell them all the, you know, American and other people who also lobby them to, <laughs> to get through. Like, oh no, the brown people did it. Everyone else is doing it, but suddenly the brown people do it. It's a big issue. Uh, but uh, anyways. No. <laughs> we can't have the brown people telling our politicians what to do. The scandal also set shockwaves across Brussels and forced Parliament to clamp down on lax rules on staff conduct. The European old... Ombudsman had not, has nonetheless questioned whether the reforms introduced under Metzola's initiative are sufficient to restore voter confidence. As whether she feared the scandal and eroded trust in the European Parliament, Metzola urged voters to judge the Parliament on its response to the sprawling graft case. We took to the immediate decision to introduce measures to make sure that we saw where the gaps were, to insert firewalls and make sure alarm bells are sounded earlier. Metzola explained, reassuring the rules are observed in the parliament. Asked whether far-right parties could choose to join a new European coalition, Metzola refused to speculate on the formation of future parliament, assuring that the current parliament has found unprecedented unity in the center. There is a speculation that the European People's Party, the parliament's biggest political group at the center-right, could be open to an alliance with Italian prime minister or premier, Giorgia Meloni's far-right Fratelli d'Italia party. EPP Chairman Manfred Weber met with Meloni last year to discuss a potential collaboration at the EU year, although the prospect has been dismissed by other prominent figures from the European centre-right. Let's look at what we have done in the centre. The pro-European centre, Metzola said. It is what we need to build on, and I look forward to be able to continue that from 2024 to 2029. So she's confident. She has no fears. She's like, why would any of this happen? I don't see a problem. Um, there are some comments on this article, which is from five hours ago, which says, the problem with so-called traditional parties, especially socialist parties, is they are not interested in doing the bidding of the electoral majority that is honest, tax-paying citizens, but would rather spend their time tinkering with minority issues, say illegal immigrants or LGBT, as a few examples that account less than small percentages of the population. My assumption on the matter is that they are doing it because it's harder to solve real meaningful problems in the economy, safety, education, healthcare, and so they intentionally waste their time in minority matters for show. I can agree with the immigration thing. Knowing? I can kind of agree with the immigration thing, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, I know you can't afford to buy milk, but look, we got rid of the immigrants. Yay! See, we're not useless. I wonder why that milk's so expensive, by the way. It, probably because he kicked the immigrants out, so nobody's out there running a cow farm. Uh, well, um... And this person, in, and that, the person replied to this saying, 
in caps, or sorry, in bold, make the EU Commission accountable to the popular vote. Make the EU democratic, for Christ's sake. They're tired of the Commission just being random citizens or random people with power put into an aristocratic bubble and uh, they have no or very limited contact with a regular EU citizen. So that's those, those. Those are two. Jack Sparrow said that. That's Jack Sparrow. <laughs> I don't know why he's talking in, about EU politics, but those are some two uh, comments on this article about what they feel about uh, the EU and how it's being run. Oh yeah, and and politicians are always just trying to move the center, right? Yeah. They, they're not gonna. They got the right, far right, far left. They're not gonna win anything. It's the center you want to move in your direction. Mm-hmm. And you get convinced them of bullshit that they're not gonna lose, right? <laughs> yeah. You're gonna lose something. <laughs> no, my things. That guy over there can't do good without you doing bad. That's one of their favorites. It's called the zero-sum game. Yeah. And they, they do well. What do you do? What? Somebody's doing good. That can't happen. I'm not doing good. I deserve it. And good news Tuesday. This is from Andy Corbley of the Good News Network. Dead man jolted back to life by intolerable bumps of India's potholes. Right on. You, they breed anger and derision. They cause annoyance, discomfort, and even expensive repairs. But India's famous potholes actually saved a life on Friday. The late Dershan Singh Brar was being transported to an Indian version of a wake after the untimely death, his untimely death from a chest infection at the age of 80. Family, relatives, and friends had already gathered for a banquet and cremation when the ambulance was being, he was buried and carried in recently received a nasty recently received a nasty jolt from a pothole in roads in Naising in a far north Indian Haryana state. It was then that Mr. Brar's grandson, who was on board the ambulance at the time, noticed his hand moving, checking his pulse and finding to his great shock there was one. He notified the driver immediately turned to immediately turn toward the nearest hospital. He was declared alive and savable, and he was referred to the Rawal, Rawal Hospital in the city of Karnal. It is a miracle. Now we are hoping that my grandfather recovers soon, said Balwan Singh, another of Mr. Brar's grandson. Everyone who had gathered to mourn his death congratulated us, and we requested them to have the food we had arranged. It's God's grace that he is now breathing, and we are hoping he will get better. A valued and expected member of the local community in Nissing, NDVD News report, reports that an entire colony was named in his honor. He had been feeling very ill and was taken to the hospital in Nissing and put on a ventilator. After four days, his heartbeat stopped. He was taken off the ventilator and declared dead. Wow. Doctors in Rawal Hospital said that the grandfather was breathing without the aid of a ventilator and his heartbeat was normalized. They can't say for certain why the other hospital declared him dead, but speculated that it may have been a technical error. Perhaps an error there. The next time you're planning to go to town, well, okay. The next time you're going to plan to go to town hall or city council with the piles in your street, consider the story of Darshan saying brar. Yes. Or the story of incompetent doctors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
In other pothole-related news, as my phone just reset itself. Okay. This is the United States, anyway. The feds are banning humorous electronic messages on highways. This is according to AP News. It's no joke. Humorous and quirky messages on electric electric signs will soon disappear from highways and freeways across the country. The U.S. Federal Highway Administration has given states two years to implement all the changes outlined in this new 1,100-page manual released last month, including rules that spelled out how signs and other traffic control signs devices are regulated. Administration officials said, said overheard overhead electronic signals with obscure meanings, references or to pop culture or those intended to be funny will be banned in 2026 because they can be misunderstood or distracting the drivers. Here's what they should say. Slow the fuck down. Very ambig- unambiguous. The agency which is, I didn't, that's my editorial, that's not an article. I don't want to give AP, you know, oh, what are they doing, what are they saying that for? Yeah. Anyway, the agency, which is part of the U.S. Department of Transportation, said signs should be simple, direct, brief, legible, and clear. And only be used for important information, such as warning drivers of crashes ahead, adverse weather conditions, and traffic delays, seatbelt reminders, and warnings about dangers of speeding or driving impaired are also allowed. Among those that will be disappearing are messages such as Use Ya Blinka with Y A H for Ya and Blinka in Massachusetts. Get it? Nobody pronounces ours. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Visiting in-laws, slow down, get there late from Ohio. <laughs> Don't drive star-spangled hammered from Pennsylvania. I like that one, star-spangled hammered. Hocus Pocus drive with focus from New Jersey. That's just too hard to read while you're flying by at 95 miles an hour. Hands on the wheel, not your meal from Arizona. Arizona has more than 300 like you like that one yeah yeah these are these are good they're banned apparently oh we made people not be totally bored on their drive from you know Tucson to God knows where that's a town in New Mexico actually it's not I just made it up Arizona has more than 300 electronic signs above its highways for the last seven years the State Department of Transportation has held a contest to find the funniest and most creative messages Arizona might just go ahead and tell them to go you know pound the road anyone could submit ideas drawing more than 3,700 entries last year the winners were seatbelts always pass a vibe check <laughs> and I'm just a sign asking drivers to use turn signals. Yeah, they're running out of ideas. The, the humor part of it, we kind of like, said State Rep David Cook, a Republican from Globe, told Phoenix Station, TV station CBS5. I think in Arizona, the majority of us does do it. Of us do. It's not all of us. He said he didn't understand the fuss. Why are you trying to have the federal government come in and tell us what we can do in our own state? Prime example that the federal government is not focused on what they need to be. There's your story about the elimination of humorous signs. 
Be serious about driving, people. It's serious business. Yeah. Stop texting and read the road signs. <laughs> and be serious about it. Damn it. Don't even think about laughing. No laughter allowed. You are driving Not. a machine that could kill oh. somebody. It's very serious. Right. You're missing one of our Boston accents, too. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Uh, that's it's good to hear that. Uh, you know, speed bumps can save lives. I guess. I mean, they they're designed to save lives by making you not going freaking 60 miles per hour down a residential street and running over kids. That's what they're designed for. So it, it was really funny that article said, "Hey, they saved uh, it saved a life for once." And I'm like, it saves a life every day. <laughs> speed bumps save lives every day. I don't think anybody designs them. They just happen. Yeah, I'm just, it's just really funny. <laughs> like, all oh, they, for once it was useful. It's always been useful. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. All right. That's it let's, for me, and that. Let's cover um, our next story, which is about how we might be causing our own suffering. Wow. Is that really a surprise? That's right. This is from Alan Aline Elisi from Euronews Next. While studying human evolution to find solutions for growing climate crisis, researchers found a mix of encouraging and depressing results. How did humans get here is the simple question Dr. Tim Waring, associate professor at the University of Maine in the US, set out to answer in a recent paper focused on climate change. If we understand the process by which we have arrived at having such a major impact on the global biosphere, then we can try to solve the problems that we are facing, he told Euronews Next. Waring works on a climate change on climate change through the lens of cultural evolution, a field of study at the intersection of biology and social sciences. His most recent paper analyzes how human evolution might prevent us from solving climate change. The professor and his colleagues Orz Sazmari and Zach Wood published the report in the world's oldest scientific journal, Philosophical Transaction. I do want to add hope for humanity, but the point of this paper is not to be artificially positive. It's to accurately describe the challenges that we face, Waring said. Waring and his team analyzed the resources that humans used, the impact they had on the environment, and the development of their cultural traits over the last 100,000 years. They found that humans have systematically found solutions to problems they faced. A lot of people currently feel that climate change is something that we will eventually solve, and there's a good reason for people to believe that because humans haven't almost haven't come across a problem that we haven't been able to solve said Waring. still our track record won't be enough to save us in the long term the authors of the paper found that one of the reasons we're so good at problem solving is that we use resources more intensely and at a greater scale whenever we need to their analysis also highlighted that humans only found solutions once problems were already out of hand in the context for climate change those approaches might not work as we only have one planet while the academic lauded international efforts such as Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer, he also highlighted that many of the endeavors were in favor of local, sub-global groups such as countries and companies. Our evolution shows that we are good at solving problems between groups, but never on this kind of scale and complexity. Solutions need to be truly global, even though it is against the interests of existing groups, authors say. I think we should be very happy that we get climate change at a first challenge because it's easier to solve and because it's very clear that it's going to be painful for all of us. 
So we should be considering ourselves lucky, the expert said, comparing it to other challenges such as the ecosystem collapse that will come down the line. We've been eliminating species and poisoning and changing the environment all over the world for a very long time, and we don't know how that is likely to influence the stability of the ecological system, he explained. But even if we do solve climate change, we'll have to watch out for our evolution traits as humans tend to be competitive over resources according to experts. Previously, conflicts caused by our competitiveness were manageable because the planet was healthier. But as we test global limits, researchers are concerned that there's no way around this destructive behavior, which once contributed to making us one of the most advanced species on the planet. There are no long-term solutions to the human evolution on the planet that doesn't involve, involve unpleasant conflict. And we need to try to solve that. Warren explained, highlighting that the model of cooperation and coordination we've been applying for the last millennia isn't sustainable. In essence, humans need to change how they evolve if they want to survive. One of the directions the paper points towards is a system of self-limitation and market regulation to bind human groups across the planet together in even more tightly and into a functional unit. But concrete solutions are still to be explored as they very poorly understood field of cultural evolution develops. We haven't thought of a lot of interesting policies yet because we haven't really considered the nature of climate change in an evolutionary perspective before, Waring said. Yeah, I mean, this sounds about right. Even though Star Trek is only science fiction, it does have something right, which is that the entire planet of Earth combined into one entity instead of being a bunch of separate entities that, you know, fight each other and try to, you know, get resources. Instead, they're like, we're all Earth. Anyways, there's aliens out there. Those are the guys we need to worry about. Of course, that's the problem. Us humans don't have an external force outside of Earth to worry about. So we all we have to do is fight each other on the planet because there's nobody else outside the planet to worry about. So I, I think that's kind of what they're also going for here is because humans need to fight each other for resources. It's just a primal urge or something. As long as we yeah. only have the planet to fight over, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to slowly destroy it as we keep yeah. fighting over things that really don't matter, like oil and, I don't know, land to feed people with. Like, we could just conglomerate all together, but one oh, person geez. wants to be in charge of all of it. And that's the problem, I guess. Yeah, we, 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 uh, we need a boogeyman. Yeah, we need another... Maybe the space aliens will do that for us. They'll attack us and go, Humans, you are only cattle. And we'll go, No, we're not. Except half of them will go, Yes, we are. <laughs> Tell us more, Master. That's who they are. Anyway, this is from LonelyPlanet.com. It's a little old, but it's still pertinent. Eight wild winter sports from around the world. And, uh, yeah, I sent you a video, by the way, so okay. maybe give you a little, I'm a, this might stretch out, so I might have time. Just because the temperature dips doesn't mean the outdoor fun has to stop. While traditionalists stick to skiing and snowboarding, so well, snowboarding used to be an extreme sport. Don't think about, forget that. Some folks get creative, either translating their own favorite warm weather sports to the warm climate or making up a whole new one. Like the guys who started sledding with a shovel. Below, eight non-traditional winter sports from around the world. Yuki Gassen. There are 
Snowfall fights, and then there's Yukigasen, a snowball competition originating in Japan that has since made its way to other snowy climates like Norway, Russia, Finland, Sweden, Alaska, and Canada. But this isn't your elementary school snowball fight. This is the snow battle is comprised of two teams, up to seven players who face off in a three-minute match, armed with 90 snowballs. And the goal will be either tagging the entire opposition up. Uh, oh wow, it's making me create an account. Let me do this again. That sucks. It was free when I was reading it. Now it's not free. <laughs> you have it's hit your limit of reading. No, we can sign up with Facebook. Or we can't. Hold on. It's the only time I clicked on it. It must have a time limit. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, we're back to reading. Woohoo! <laughs> Let me do it with Google. All right. Continuing. When they got their 90 snowballs, the goal is either tagging the entire opposition out like dodgeball or capturing the entire the other team's flag. You can see it in person when 100 teams battle it out every February at the Shawa Shinzan International Yakigasen. Snow Polo! The first snow polo tournament was held in a frozen lake in glitzy St. Moritz in 1985 and has since become an annual tradition of fur-clad set. Basically, a winter version of polo, there are a few tweaks. The sport is polo played on, with horses on the snow, yes, but unlike regular polo, there is an added obstructions of wind, chill, and powder. Okay, so it's just polo. Horses, horses are outfitted with special shoes. Oh, they're nice to the horses when they're making them run around the call. And braided tails and are watched carefully by the players. The sport, the sport has also made its way stateside held at St. Regis in Aspen every December. If you go dress to impress and don't forget to stop by the Bloody Mary bar. No way am I gonna sit out and watch that in the snow. Sorry. Snow kayaking. Did you get that one? Snow kayaking. Who says kayaks are only made for the water? When powder comes, they also make excellent vehicles just speeding downhill. That's the premise for snow kayaking, where kayaks are waxed like skis and shoved off a high slope. Players are given a paddle for some semblance of control. And I was making a comment. How are you going to slow down with a paddle? I'm thinking of a kayak paddle. <laughs> I don't know what would slow you down after you've been greased up for a slope. Yeah. Also called snowboating, the first race was held in 2002 by local Austrian kayakers and now has grown to have its own world championship on a fixed course. Taking it even further, some of the adventurers will add a parachute to catch air. Ski, sky kayaking, anyone? Ski joring, a Norwegian word in pastime. Ski joring, in rough, roughly translated to ski driving. In this speedy winter sport, a person on skis is pulled by an animal, most commonly up to three dogs, to assist with cross-country skiing. But the sport isn't just limited to animals. It is also including motorcycles, other vehicles, and other various animals, including horses. Equestrian ski joring was introduced as an exhibition sport in 1928 Olympics, but never quite, never quite made it to the competition status. 
Today, fans can still find events to watch, including the annual World Ski Joring Championship in Whitefish, Montana, where participants are pulled through a course by their steed with a rider through jumps, turns, and other obstacles. Ski Ballet. Ski Ballet is just what it sounds like. Once upon a time, athletes dressed up sometimes with puffy sleeves and performed choreographed freestyle skiing. There were jumps, twists, flips, and even moonwalking. There were no limits, and that was part of the appeal. Not unlike figure skating, ski ballet, also called a cross-knee, even made it to the exhibition status of the Olympics, but never quite generated the interest they hoped it would, despite being splashy and set mostly to popular music at the time. The sport faded into history after the year 2000, but you can still catch some tricks in the ski ballet scene in 1940 movie, the 1940s movie, Hot Dog. Hot Dogs. Snow, yeah, snow kiting. To understand snow kiting, start with kite boarding, where a large controllable kite plus wind is utilized to propel your board along or out of the water to do tricks. Now swap the water for snow and a wetsuit for snow gear and you've got snow kiting. The sport has been gaining popularity all over the world with the largest competition, the Red Bull Ragnarok, held annually in Kanda Handangarabida, Norway, with 350 kites dotting the course of the race. Potential for chaos. I would think. I don't know, maybe it's just a big course. Shovel racing. What do you do when you can't find a sled? Grab your shovel. At least that's what lift workers in New Mexico ski resorts did in the 1970s, enabling them to speedily get down the mountain after the workday was over. It naturally turned into the to a race and then a bonafide sport, even featured in the 1997 Winter X Games. Wow. Then it quickly shut down. Yeah, then it was quickly shut down after a participant was injured. Got hit in the face with a shovel, handle, I mean. Today the tradition is kept up by the Angel Fire Resort in Northern New Mexico with the World Championship shovel races, usually in January or February. Those are crazy, wacky world of winter sports. Back to you. <laughs> All right, yeah, there's a lot of those in there I would never do. Honestly, I don't really like winter sports myself because I like warm weather. So I don't know why I'd want to go outside when it's snowing, but <laughs> that's me. Hey man, I saw where George Bailey's little brother Harry almost drowned in one of the shovels going down. Yeah, that was real, that was yeah, a pit. That drowned. really happened. Yeah, and he would have he would have never saved them people in that transport. Because he, he would have drowned. Because he was playing stupid winter sports, you know, on the ice. Exactly. All right. He'd have been doing something nice and wholesome. <laughs> like, you know. I don't know. In our culture segment here, let's talk about the boxing family in Mexico who's improving the lives of young people. This is from Gregory Ward and Soliman Masalti. The role of a coach includes everything from being a dad to being a psychologist, a doctor, and a therapist. The Ramirez family' main goal is to keep young people off the gritty, crime-ridden streets in Ecatepec de Moros, Mexico. Boxing is their passion, so they want to share it with the community. They found a derelict space underneath one of the city's busy bridges and transformed it into a boxing gym. Gym Ramirez Box. It's literally an underpass. Just open, open air underpass with a bunch of uh, 
punching bags and uh. some other training tools. Jim Ramirez is different from most ordinary gyms amidst the sound of the vehicles overhead. His primary aim is to deter children from criminal activity by teaching them boxing. Huh? Why are you showing me that? Oh, I just told you. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know you were looking at me, man. Keep, I'm always keep, looking keep, at you. <laughs> I can see everything oh, that's wow, happening. Okay. I have a monitor for all, all right. things. Okay. <laughs> Ectopec. Um, at the head right, of is McGill <laughs> Ramirez, who founded the gym with his family 14 years ago. He told scenes that it was important to them to impact the community positively. Egatepec is known everywhere in Mexico as a red spot for crime. It is very dangerous, but under the bridge, we want to help people, help these people, says Miguel, Miguel Ramirez. By day, Miguel runs a small street food business selling Mexican tacos. Hell yeah. And in the evening, he devotes his time to training young, aspiring boxers. His family's unique sports center has become a sanctuary for many young people, and Miguel finds himself helping in more than one, more ways than one. Miguel believes that by instilling the strong discipline of boxing, those who practice it have fewer opportunities to fall into a life of crime. We want young people to have another vision, he says. A former boxer himself, Miguel's grandfather, father, son, daughter, and grandson have all been involved in the sport. His grandson, Yosafat Hernandez Cervantes, is an aspiring boxer who hopes to become the world champion one day. When I'm boxing, I feel great, Yosafat tells scenes. Jim Ramirez is a very nice place with very good coaches. They motivate me to keep fighting for my dreams, he says. The role of the coach includes many things. You do everything, from being a, da a dad to being a psychologist, a doctor, and a therapist, McGill says proudly. When you have been with a student for many years, he is already part of your family, he adds. There are times when young people cannot afford to eat or do not have money to attend the gym. Miguel says that on that, those occasions, he steps in to offer support. I tell them I will not charge you a penny, but the condition is that you come and train, he says firmly. As a boxing coach, Miguel has witnessed and shared the achievements of the young people he trains. His dedication and expertise have led to several of his boxers excelling in local and national competitions. I have been named manager of the year three years now, Miguel says, because I have trained six boxers to deliver the most gold, silver, and bronze medals in the city. Despite his achievements as coach, Miguel is constantly aware that he is responsible for the safety of the young boxers in his care. He takes proactive measures to protect them from potential harm during training. In such a big responsibility, because boxing is not easy, there are blows and your life is at risk or your life is at stake. If you don't prepare them properly, they are at risk, explains Miguel. Fernanda Michelle Ramirez Perez, Miguel's daughter, is a former fighter turning boxing coach. She has trained students for over 12 years and says she enjoys positively influencing young people's lives. Many children learn how to defend themselves because many suffer from bullying, Fernanda tells scenes. I like to teach, tell, teach people that come here looking for refuge. For them to know that they are welcome, says Fernanda warmly. Fernanda, the gym's sole female boxing coach, says she takes pleasure in steering young people away from negative influences and towards a healthy lifestyle. I like boxing because it's one of the most complete sports. It's where you can de-stress in all aspects, says Fernanda. It's a sport that can change lives, she adds. The Ramirez families are motivated by seeing the young people achieve recognition in boxing. Their passion for the sport and guidance have helped steer young people away from crime and other negative influences. As a family, 
We form a great team, says Miguel. Jim Ramirez is something my whole family and I enjoy, and we do it with pleasure. The positive impact of the family's gym extends far beyond the bridge and into the community. Miguel hopes that every young person in the area finds the motivation to change their lives for the better. So there's your very positive and inspiring news story about a family who just opened a gym under a freaking overpass. So don't let anything stop you because these people aren't letting anything stop them. Very inspiring indeed. Very inspiring on Roy Jones Jr.'s birthday. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm looking at my birthdays. Also, Muhammad Ali's birthday tomorrow. So. Oh. This day in history, though, in 1547, Ivan the Terrible was crowned Tsar and Grand Prince of Russia. Ivan the Terrible, of course, famously given that nickname by his wife. <laughs> 1556, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, renounced his claim on Spain. So, tired of Spain. No longer. You guys don't Spain. eat your vegetable. That's right. He, 1883, on this day, the Pendleton Civil Service Act, a bill sponsored by Senator George H. Pendleton of Ohio, established Civil Service Commission in the United States. This day, 1934, opera singer Marilyn Horn was born. Noted American mezzo-soprano, noted for her seamless quality and exceptional range, which tends to be something desirable in opera singers. All right. 1973, the last episode of Bonanza aired on NBC. It was a popular Western series, ended after 14 seasons. Dun, 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 dun. 1992, the Civil War in El Salvador ended as the government in the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front signed the Chapultepec Peace Accords in Mexico City. Hey, in more 2006. celebrating Mexico. Huh? More celebrating Mexico. Oh, yeah. Well, it was in El Salvador in uh, peace treaty with, uh, you know, the warring factions in El Salvador, which is famously the, uh, I believe the Sandinistas, that's where they were. Uh, or that might have been Nicaragua. A lot of them Central American countries are tough for me to sort out their history because they're crammed together with U.S. involvement. Yeah. <laughs> 2006, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first woman to be elected head of state of an African country, was sworn in as president of Liberia. 2017, American astronaut Eugene Cernan, the last person to walk on the moon, Died at the age of 82. Well, I thought it was uh, Harrison Schmidt. So I guess he was the other guy, with Harrison Schmidt. They were both the last. Yeah. When was the when was the last one on the ladder? You know. But he was. That was in 1972, over 50 years ago. And the moon's like, you guys, you don't ride, you don't come back. Oh, by the way, we just lost another probe. Maybe we'll cover that tomorrow. The private one of them private companies crashed it. American Brecker producer in 2021, Phil Spector, died at the age of 80. He was in jail at the time, I believe, for second-degree murder. 
And the featured event on this day, 1991, the beginning of the Persian Gulf War. That's right, the Persian Gulf War, tri triggered by Iraq's occupation of Kuwait in August 1990, began on this day in 1991 with the U.S.-led air offensive against Iraq that continued until the ceasefire was declared on February 28th. So it really wasn't a war, it was more like a bunch of bombing and then a surrender fest. And this uh, birthday is today, Diane Fossey's birthday. She was born on this day in, 19, in January 16th, 1932, American zoologist. She died in 1985, age of 53 in Rwanda, famously probably killed by poachers. She lived with gorillas. Susan Sontag, American writer, was born on this day in 1933. Sade, British singer, born this way in 1959. Roy Jones Jr., my page just flipped on its own. Roy Jones Jr., American boxer, was born in 1969 on this day. Kate Moss, a British model, born in 1974. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, famously actor, composer, lyricist, and writer, and of the Broadway play Hamilton. And this day is also known as, as we said, National Nothing Day. Let's see. National Religious Freedom Day, which you're free to, to, to worship nothing. <laughs> and National Fig Newton Day, which is what's better than a Fig Newton? What's better? Nothing is better than a Fig Newton. <laughs> And it's National Without a Scalpel Day because you should never be walking around without a scalpel anyway because they're really sharp. And let's see, what are you supposed to do on National Nothing Day? It says here, nothing. So those are good for today, January 16th, 2024 on B4 Coffee. If I'm still on camera. You're still here. You're still here. All right. All right. Well, this has been Allison from the Netherlands, who I guess will be doing nothing today. And I hope you're also going to be doing nothing. You know what? Take one for me. Take a break. Sometimes it's nice to just stare at the clouds in the sky. If there are clouds in the sky. If there aren't clouds where you are, mm -hmm. uh, I stare at the rain falling. Today, it's also nice and peaceful. <laughs> today, Maryland can build a snowman. Yeah. Do nothing. And uh, we will see you tomorrow for our wacky news on Wacky and Weird Wednesday. Here is your mic drop moment. So that Americans who love this country and just want a better future don't have to listen to hours of frustrating attacks and procedural debates in a partisan game. Let me sum it up. One, there is zero evidence of President Biden doing anything wrong, including in connection with his son. No evidence of an impeachable offense. Not a little, not something, none. Two, Hunter Biden has offered to testify in public in front of this committee. If Republicans only want his secret private testimony, that is, as the kids say this these days, sus. If my Republican colleagues are truly in this to get answers, and I hope they are, stop wasting all our time on holding Hunter Biden in contempt on a deposition and ask him your questions. He'll be here under oath, and the American people can watch. What's more transparent than that? 
What's better accountability than letting um, the American people hear Hunter Biden's answers? That's real accountability, not political gamesmanship behind closed doors. This is a game where nobody wins and everybody loses. It is Washington at its worst. And I'll tell it like it is without pointing the finger at either party. This sucks. Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons. And follow our other channels. Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.